You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Good afternoon and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Anne Hornaday, chief film critic here at The Post. And I am truly delighted to be in conversation today with one of the most highly acclaimed actors in Hollywood and yay, verily, the world, Tilda Swinton. Hi, Tilda. Hello. Very nice to see you. It's great to see you. Thank you for joining us. And where are you joining us from today? I think you're, you're far flung as usual. I'm, uh, I'm actually in Denmark. Very rarely am I here, but I'm here preparing a project uh, very happily in the snow away from other things. So, uh, yes, I managed to um, manage to find this very valuable time to talk to you. Oh, we're so very grateful and we do have so much to talk about, but I can't wait to dive into the eternal daughter. So delicious. It's so great to see so much of you. And in so in, in this, as the intro said, this fascinating dual role. Uh, role. Um, this is a movie that purposefully leaves itself open to myriad interpretations. It's already um, sparking lots of conversations, but I wanted to start, what does it mean to you? What do you think this movie is about? Um, well, in the first instance, I have to declare at the border that it means a lot to me, this movie. Uh, it's, a, it's a film that Joanna Hogg uh, and I have in many ways been working towards for 50 years. Joanna is, if not my oldest friend, my most long-standing friend. I've known her since I was 10 and she was 11. And in many ways, I think we have to face up to the fact that we've been talking about our mothers and our relationships with our mothers and the mysteries of our mothers ever since we met. Uh, and this film is a very uh, personal film for both of us. So uh, it's, it's very precious. Uh, what it means to me and what I think it, it, it addresses is something about spirit and um, this eternal question of where do we begin and our mother end? I mean, and where do we, where do we end and our child begin? I think it's really a question we all ask ourselves all the time at every age, but particularly when we have elderly mothers in particular. I mean, I think it could, can also be meaningful for people with, with, uh, with elderly fathers, but there's something about giving your mother up that this film addresses that I don't think it's comfortable for us to look at very often. So it's a great honor to look at it with Joanna here. Oh, you're so right. And, and what makes it sort of, it, it's such a, um, it's a, it's a recursive piece because it refers back, of course, to the two souvenir films that Joanna mm -hmm. did that were really breakouts. I mean, I've been following her career for a long time and had been a huge fan. So uh, those lucky, you know, few of us who knew of her already were so happy to see her finally reach a wider audience. But of course, mm -hmm. those were films uh, that were semi-autobiographical, you know, with the with the character Julie Hart played by your daughter, Honor Swinton Byrne. Um, so this there's this this wonderful not just doubling but tripling and quadrupling quality to this project. Well, for those who don't uh, know, uh, aren't both lucky and clever enough to know Joanna's work and as as you are um here her work is always fairly uh, closely autobiographical uh, her first film unrelated which i personally believe is a kind of masterpiece particularly coming as a first feature 
um, sort of set the tone for a kind of self-revelation and a sort of atmosphere of reverie that, that she's followed through all her films. And the souvenir films were very clearly about a period in her life that I remember very well. I was sort of around at the time when, when she, she had this particular relationship and was becoming a filmmaker. And when she first asked me uh, to play the mother, which of course was sort of loosely based on her own mother, with a smattering of my mother in there um, and various other mothers we've known, um, I was very, very uh, happy and uh, and privileged to say yes, because it was also approaching my own autobiography in a way. And then, of course, she was looking for the girl for the longest time, and uh, I was giving her all sorts of names and <laughs> at the very last minute, I mean, pretty much the very last minute, thought of someone much closer to home who happened to be the perfect person to play the daughter, my, my own daughter, Honor. And for, for when we, was, we started to talk about the eternal daughter, which, as I've said, we were sort of approaching for years and years and years. But when we started getting quite concrete about the project, the, the film we might make, we didn't originally think that it would be about Julie and Rosalind. I was always going to play the younger woman. And we were thinking for a long time about finding someone older. Again, not necessarily a, a performer, but a person, a human, usually, uh, not always, um, to play their mother. And um, and then we just made the souvenirs and were a little besotted with Rosalind, I have to confess. We were very, very drawn to her and, and, and this particular portrait of someone who, let's not say she was, I mean, she was sort of influenced by both our mothers, but let's say she was someone our mothers might have known. Um, <laughs> That, that we then decided to build it around Rosalind. And then we thought, well, hang on, who are you going to play then? And there was this moment when I suggested, in the way in which you can only suggest something like that with someone you've known since you were 10, why don't I play both? And then the film was born because, of course, for those who have seen the film and for those who have not yet, you will discover, it actually had to be played by one person. The, the, the entire film had to be, these two uh, portraits had to be carried by one person. Uh, so yes, it wasn't always going to be linked in this way to the souvenirs. It's certainly not uh, uh, a third part or anything, it, but it does have a relationship for sure, because Julie and Rosalind are there. And another Spaniel who is a, who is a descendant of the Spaniels who we met in the souvenirs. Oh, that's so great. I'm so glad to know that because part of Rosalind, you know, part of the vividness of her character in the souvenir films are the dogs, you know, and just the way we all, it's just immediately recognizable, right? That that woman, you know, that, that family. Um, so to the point that it only could be played by one person, I want to play a clip right now that I think illustrates this amazing, uh, I was going to say dual performance, but is it really? So let's watch the clip and come back. I got you a nice glass of wine. Thank you very much. Oh, goodness me. Are we early or late? I mean, are we the only people staying here? Have you worked that out yet? I know, I don't know. There was no one here when I arrived. Oh, look at that. Thank you very much. 
That's very welcome. Oh, that just gives us delicious tantalizing speck of, of the mood and the tone and the delicious psychological uh, layers of this movie. So not to, not to sort of break the spell, but did you have, when you're playing against yourself, was there another person? I mean, were you doing those scenes with at least another human being to play off of? I mean, tell, tell us a little bit about how you approach the performance technically. Well, um, the most, a significant part of the work, of course, was the bedrock of the way in which we work together and that Joanna works, which is to improvise the dialogue entirely. There is no screenplay as such. There's no script. And uh, there's a sort of uh, document, like a, almost like a short story, that she has, of course, crafted over very often many years, um, which she which I knew very well and and um, most members of the crew, not all knew. Um, but that's a very scant skeleton that um, will say, uh, Julie and Rosalind have dinner action. <laughs> there isn't necessarily uh, any guidance uh, on uh, what they might discuss or what they might do. And so the building of the material happens on the spot in front of the camera. This is a very particular way of working. So this is always, let's say, tantalizing and let's say a wonderful opportunity, but also let's say challenging, um, but fascinating. And, and I really, really love it. And to use your word, Anne, it is delicious. And it's a, it's a really, inspiring way of working and, and makes writers of all of us because we, 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 we need to find our words in a very sort of productive way. But when working with oneself, it's a real chunk of change. So uh, what we did with each of the scenes or each of the passages was we sort of figured out roughly who was going to start the dialogue, who was going to start the action or start the gesture of the of the moment. And we would start shooting that person first. And we would shoot her uh, for however long we needed to. And for those sections, Joanna was always sort of underneath the camera or just by the camera. And I was improvising to her or with her. And then, of course, we had to be quite clear when we turned around. Um, and I turned into the other person that we could remember <laughs> what we'd done, um, which yeah. wasn't always prior. It's not. It's it's not because, of course, the film, the material, part of the material of the film is about how people find it difficult to listen to each other, how they find it difficult to communicate with one another at all, but also how difficult it is to respond and to to really to be attentive to one another. So it wasn't an abs it wasn't the kind of this is one of the joys of this kind of work that one's not, you know, it's not, uh, you know, a, re a, repeti a repetitive or um, it, it's not like a sort of finely wrought screenplay or a finely wrought play where everybody sounds like a playwright. That Joanna is a great respecter, as I would say I am, of inarticulacy, of of silence, of uh, the urge to speak, but the inability to find the right words. So that's in there. So that's that's always a great, um, that's our uh, sort of get out clause. But, th but then we sort of filmed the other side. And when we filmed the other side, the second side, I was 
responding to my own memory. I was not responding to Joanna at that point. I was responding to some kind of sense memory of what I had done or a version of what I had done as the first as the first portrait. And it's it to me rubbing your tummy or whatever that thing is that people are supposed exactly. to Exactly. Exactly, which you're 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 a past master, of which you are a past master. Um, but it also seems that when you're working this way without a, a narrative script, a, t a type written script, that you're you're really just playing the emotion, right? I mean, it's it's all subtext at that level. Um, it is, which has to, you know, I, I don't know if that's more challenging or less. But does that mean more takes or fewer? Like, was this a quick, a relatively kind of one and done type of a thing, or? No, it was something, as I said, because one's building the text in front of the camera, um, well, we work with very long takes for a start. Um, so we might, you know, we'll shoot right to the end of a magazine and then start again. Um, not so many. And the editing is, of course, a, a real, really al alchemical process. And, and Hella, Lefebvre and Joanna, uh, had an extraordinary editing process of, of piecing it all together and of course mixing and matching and weaving a strange inarticulate tapestry out of this relationship um but uh yeah it, it it's the the pauses the the, the i mean th these women the, i mean the material the actual subject of the film is uh how does one reach another and how does one reach one's mother and how does one reach one's child? And how does one give oneself permission not to be reached by one child? That, that's the sort of subject. And so that gives us permission to leave these great wells of unspoken emotion and tiptoe up on the emotion that we do want to approach and we do want to articulate. But the whole thing is built on a kind of volcano of unspoken stuff. Which we can, who can relate to that? I, um, we all can. Exactly. Yes. We do have uh, we, lots of audience questions, and I want to get to one right now. Um, one, well, actually, more than one, several people are asking, and, and you intimated this earlier, but maybe you could elaborate. Did you channel your own relationship with your mother to create your on screen dynamic um, between both characters? And I might even, I might take my prerogative to add. When I, I too have friends from that long ago, you know, to, and our mothers are almost, you know, we were raised by each other's moms, you know, so their mothers loom just as largely for me as my own in many ways. And I think of them all the time. So I guess I would add that in to like, how did you build Rosalind here? Well, when we were building Rosalind in the souvenir films, and uh, I think the reason that we wanted to return to her and I must declare that, that Joanna and I are still very fascinated in, by Rosalind, and we may even return to her again, uh, is because to, to look at the portrait of a mother of our mother's generation and the particular gap between a mother of that generation and a daughter of our generation was so rich for us and felt so particular. Now, I'm sure it's true that it's always going to be rich to look at the relationship between any mother and any daughter. I know that's this, the case, but there's something for us um, about a kind of 
um, a mother born when our mothers were born, who lived through the war, who came into uh, motherhood at a time when there were all sorts of very interesting, energetic sort of uh, force fields being broached about what a mother was and what a mother could give her daughter, what a mother could not show her daughter, how she could support her daughter, how she could guide her daughter, um, what she should keep from her daughter. That felt to us really like treasure. And we hadn't, we felt that we hadn't really seen it mined before uh, very often, or certainly we wanted to go there. And so in answer to your first question, um, I did definitely um, think of my mother a lot during um, the making of Rosalind in all of these films. She um, She's a different person to all of our mothers. She's a different uh, person to Joanna's mother and she's a different person to mine. But she, she as I say, she, 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 shares, um, she shares a culture with our mothers and she shares in many ways a kind of attitude to her daughter. I mean, um, all these mothers have artist daughters and don't know what to do. Right. <laughs> and and have, have dedicated their lives to living in a certain way in support of their husbands. And as all all three of all three of our mothers, Julie, Joanna's and mine, um, all have sat to a certain extent on the artist in themselves. And one of the things that I find very moving in the souvenirs and and to a certain extent in, in the eternal daughters, the way in which um, Rosalind discovers the artist in herself and is guided by her daughter um, and, you know, takes up pottery. And there's in Souvenir 2, there's this sort of tragedy of the Etruscan pot, which if you haven't seen Souvenir 2, you won't know what I mean. But if you have, you will know exactly what I mean. This feeling of being guided by her daughter, I find deeply touching and, and emblematic in many cases of that sort of that generation, uh, because they didn't necessarily know what to make of us. We, we were born, those of us who were born in the 60s, into an entirely new world, um, very, very different to the world in which they were born into. Um, and so they were, on the one hand, very hands off, and on the other hand, had sort of laid down a code for us that we couldn't follow because it didn't really work anymore. Exactly, and I think, I think one of the struggles that this movie brought up for me was this feeling of leaving one another behind, you know, sort of for us to go into the world the way we were conditioned to do in this, like you just said, generationally, that did mean sort of leave a rejection that was, yeah. I'm sure, devastating personally and emotionally for them that we being young and self-centered would not have recognized at the time. And now I look back and think, God, I, you know, it's that, that's so palpable for me in this particular film. It's a thing that 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 um, I mean, the sad thing for Julie, I, I find, is that because she doesn't become a mother herself, she doesn't know that she can't put a foot wrong. And what we as mothers know is that our children are immaculate <laughs> and and they can never fail us. But what a, what Julie doesn't know is that she can't get it wrong. There's that heartbreaking moment when when she says, I got it wrong. And, um, but, but if, if, if Rosalind were there, she would be able to explain that that's impossible. She's perfect. 
so I think there's that um, there's just something very very tender about the disconnect uh, between them. They're so they don't. I mean, there's so much chit chat and so much in many ways, baby talk, the whole thing about the stuffed animals. And of course, the great love of Springer Spaniels in our case, in my family, um, the great, the sort of using of animals as a sort of intermediary of love, mm -hmm. um, whether they're stuffed or not, um, that the great panic in the internal daughter when Louis goes missing, it's very real. And um, I think that that, that particular sort of piquancy of of disconnect isn't for example borne out in later generations i mean when we made the souvenirs my daughter honor and i were very attendant to the fact that our relationship is very very different um we and we had to really i had to in a way inform her not to be not to rely on a kind of just openness between us um, because we have that, but, but then you know we're we're a different we're a different round, and I as a as a daughter was so thrilled to be able to have a different relationship with my children. That's my privilege, and that's their privilege as well. Um, but it is a it's like another country that kind of that kind of generation. It's so so very true, and I think it's so easy to take it for granted. Um... I, I'd like to, I, I'm aware of our time, and I wanted to talk to you a little bit about, I, I happened to um, happen upon your recent appearance at the Academy Museum. The, you were honored the Visionary Award at the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, and once again, you delivered such a moving speech. Um, it was just so meaningful, and you, you're, you're becoming really known for these moments where you sort of crystallize the moment, you know, the cinematic moment, the cultural moment, what film means. Um, and I just wanted to, to, to talk to you about that. You had said in the, in the Academy talk, you said, you know, it was really a rallying cry for the humanistic mission of cinema, the humanistic potential of cinema. And you said, film is good for us. And I just wanted to ask you to elaborate on that for a little bit. I am so uh, so honoured and 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 delighted to have chances to to say that sentence, and <laughs> I truly believe it. I think film, I think cinema, is is truly a sort of it, it'll save us if we let it, and if we ignore it, we're really missing a trick. And one of the most uh, beneficial things, if one can think of anything beneficial about the pandemic, uh, is that when we were all locked in or locked up or locked down or whatever we were, um, all of us, not just cine nerds like me and you, um, missed, I would say, four things. We missed our friends and family, we missed traveling, we missed live music, and we missed cinema, what I call big cinema. And it was really interesting because it, it, it came at a time when people ha were rumbling in all sorts of ways about, oh, cinema is kind of old hat, isn't it? Don't we just want to watch Netflix on the end of our bed? And, you know, aren't the screens getting smaller? And do we really uh, need to value big cinema? And if anything, ironically, uh, 
reprised the great triumph of big cinema. It was the pandemic because we re we yearn for it. We need it. And we've known it for so long. My son once um, asked me this incredible question when he was eight and a half of all ages. Uh, and um, I, I've mulled I've about this moment before and I, I, I've written about it um, because I still can't believe that he had this wisdom. He asked me once um, when I was putting him to bed and and, and wishing him a, a beautiful dream. He said, uh, Mama, what were people's dreams like before cinema? Oh, and, wow. you know, cinema is so ingrained in our, I mean, it's no coincidence, I don't think, that psychoanalysis and cinema were all kind of born at the same time. It's so important for us. And we, we ignore its power and its healing capacity and it's and the and the visionary nature of it, the fact that it can actually guide us. We we when we when we value big cinema, we see who we are and we see what we want. We see uh, what, what our desires are, what our fears are. Um, it's it, it's we need it, and and we we must always remember that. I want to get to one more audience question, and then if I have time, I'd like to loop back to what you just said. But um, Elizabeth in Minnesota asks, what role stretched you the most? I would say, Elizabeth, um, and it sounds like I'm being flippant, but I think that um, playing a, a corporate lawyer um, uh, in Michael Clayton was probably the biggest stretch for my imagination. Um, I, at that stage, had never met a corporate lawyer. <laughs> and it was easier for me to imagine a, 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 an immortal nobleman who wakes right. up as a woman than, uh, than to imagine being a corporate lawyer. So I think that, I mean, I had to learn the sort of, the coat. What, does, what do these people wear? How do they speak? How do they hold themselves? I didn't know. So um, that was probably the, the, the biggest stretch. <laughs> And look what happened. I mean, that is such, I, I don't think a day goes by when I don't talk about that movie. And usually it's, it's, it's one or two of those scenes, one of the greatest revealed in cinematic history with you and, and uh, a phone call. I'll leave it there. But I mean, truly, what a masterpiece. What a great well, what, piece of filmmaking what, that was. What, an absolutely extraordinary screenplay by Tony Gilroy, who did the thing that, that I hate to say it, but a, a lot of writers forget to do, which is to write different people in different ways. And, uh, and, and, that's, what, and that's what you get. You get a, a real, really classical. Uh, it, I, I felt like a, that was a real proper, good Hollywood, Hollywood, Hollywood movie. I mean, it was a real proper Hollywood movie. And, and I also suggest... Um, uh, George Clooney's greatest, greatest moment. I mean, incredible piece of performance by him. Few would disagree. Um, and I agree with you about it. it is sort of that quintessential. Well, and, I, and that loops back to what you were just saying in, in, in your defense of big cinema. Are you worried? I mean, we're now seeing some sort of alarming statistics about audiences returning for the big blockbusters and superhero films. But the, the smaller films um, that you're often in and that I like to champion are not drawing audiences back into theaters at quite the same rate. So do you have any sense of where we're going and how things are going to shake out? I'm not looking at the numbers, Anne, as you are. Um, I'm not worried, again, because I, I mean, for a start, I don't 
if if people still value big cinema for blockbusting Marvel films or whatever else, um, okay, they still valuing big cinema, and we can thank big blockbusters for that because they're keeping people um, on the drug. Um, not to be flippant, but uh, they they the fact that it's when people. And I and as I say, I really don't think there will come a time when people give up on the experience uh, of cinema. I mean, big cinema is an experience. We have to remember that. I think very often um, there's a mistake made uh, to 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 imagine that cinema is only valuable as a kind of narrative art. That it, you know, oh, have you seen that film? Yes. What happens? It's not about that necessarily. It's not necessarily about a plot. It's not necessarily about a performance. It's not necessarily about um, a thrill or a car chase um, or a reveal. It, it's usually, and, and, and good, big, pure cinema is about atmosphere and about environment and about transport and fantasy. All films are fantasies. It doesn't matter if they're set by a kitchen sink. That's still a fantasy. It doesn't even matter if they're a documentary. That's still a fantasy. You're in the eyes of a filmmaker, you're in the hands of filmmakers, and you go there with them. And I think that knowing that it's an experience, and it's also an experience going into the dark in a, in a big room with some popcorn and a whole bunch of strangers, that's part of it. You know, there's only so much we want to look at at the end of our bed or on the back of our wrist, actually. Um, and, and as long as we, think that it's just about remembering or, or following the plot, then we're going to miss out on all the treasure of big cinema. I made a, a, a film with the great Thai master Apichat Pongwir Etcetical a couple of years ago, and it was released by Neon. And extraordinarily and, and, and magisterially, they gave it the release that we'd asked them to, which is to show it only in cinemas. And rather like a rock concert that you um, buy a ticket for nine months in advance when you know your favorite band is coming to town and you take your ticket and you stick it on the back of the refrigerator or front of the refrigerator under a magnet and you wait. This film has been going around the States in one cinema at a time for the last year and people have been going. And that is not a blockbuster, I can tell you that much. That is an extraordinarily experiential film um, about sound and spirit. and. People have been lapping it up and they have been waiting for their ticket to be checked in. They, they, they have the capacity for it. So I'm not worried. No, I'm not worried. I mean, I think, I mean, what I would really love to see, and I've said this before, but I'll go on saying it. I would really love to see the streamers putting their money where their mouth is. If they really believe in big cinema, I'd like to see them building big theatres or resuscitating or renovating big theatres in all the towns that they reach around the globe so that it, you do have the choice to watch something on the end of your bed or to go into the town and sit with a bunch of strangers in the dark. That's what I would love to see because they've got a lot of money, so they have to spend it somehow. Um, I would rather they did that. I would rather they use it to inform and educate and enlighten the entire population of the planet about the fact that we have more than 11 decades of cinema archive to, to rest on 
So I would rather see them do that in a way. I shouldn't really say this than spend a lot of money making new films. I would like to see them, you know, raise the bar on the, 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 the educational aspect of the cinema archive. Um, but I'm not I'm not worried at all. I think it, no one no one's getting off this drug. Oh, may it be so. May it be ever so. Tilda Swinton, we are out of time. I have to leave it there. But thank you so much for joining us today for this conversation. Um, see the eternal daughter revel in the greatness of Tilda Swinton. Thank you for joining us, Tilda. Very much. Thank you. Lots of love. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.